We have been in a series for the last few weeks called Family on Mission, and this is our final week in this series, and we have been talking about the mission of our church, uh, meaning what, like, why do we exist and, and what is the purpose that God has given our church specifically? What is the calling that he's given to us as a group of believers? Uh, what is it that God is uh, wanting for us to accomplish um, as we gather together and meet together and, and worship together? Um, and um, what we said in the beginning of this was uh, what our mission is. Um, specifically here at OCEC, we say we're building a community to reach a community. Um, and we've been unpacking that over the last several weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, building a community here um, in order to reach the community outside the walls of this church. We do not exist just for ourselves. Um, and, um, but we must first come to find life in Jesus before we can offer that life to others. The first thing that we talked about, we've talked about our values, which is like the kind of the principles or the rules that govern your life. Uh, your values really determine the course of your life. They determine your actions, your priorities. Everything comes from the values that you have. And the first value that we talked about was this. We are centered on the gospel, meaning we find life in Jesus who saves us and is our hope. And that is what our community is built on. Our community is built on the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. Our community is not built on uh, rules that say we save ourselves if we can follow all the right rules together. Our community is not built on us achieving a certain level of success in life or as a group of people even, but um, our community is built first and foremost on the fact that Jesus has saved us sinners and we are forgiven by the grace of God, by the mercy of God because of what Jesus did. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, then you have experienced the saving power of the gospel. You have experienced life, finding life in Jesus, and you are a part of the church. And we as a group of people who find life in Jesus and the gospel uh, then ask, what's the next value? What do we do next? And what we talked about last week was this, we're empowered for ministry, that Jesus left um, left us. He went back to be with the Father, and he said, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to, Father's going to empower you with spiritual gifts. He's going to empower you with gifts so that collectively, as a group, you can do what I did as an individual, which is why the church is referred to as the body of Christ. Uh, honestly, there's no better uh, way of thinking about it than like, you know, Voltron or uh, some other kind of like... Um, like transformer type things that all come together to form one ultimate one of those. That's basically what we are. We, each one of us um, has a gift, a unique set of gifts that God has given us, and we use these gifts for ministry. We use these gifts for ministry. We don't use them for ourselves. We use them to build a community and to reach a community. So we are centered on the gospel and we're empowered, which means that we're not passive. And I think in our current culture today, what makes a huge difference is it means that we're not consumers primarily. Uh, in a world that is kind of built on consumerism, um, and even to be honest, if many of us are really honest, we would say that's what maybe even drew us to the house of God, was this desire to get a need met or to, or to find fulfillment in some way that we weren't already. We're looking to kind of like um, add a component to our lives so that we could have a well-rounded life, um, regardless of what brings us 
to this place, we recognize that being empowered for ministry with these gifts means that we don't see our role in the church as those who consume and are expecting a place that is perfectly comfortable for us. But instead, we are actually involved and empowered in order to do ministry with others. We're going to take that a step further this morning when we talk about our third value. And our third value is this. We live lives of invitation. We live lives of invitation. So here's the thing about um, what we believe. And we believe what we believe because it is what the Bible teaches us, what we see to be true. The Bible is kind of lived out around us in this life, and, and we see the truth of Scripture all around us. What we believe that we read in Scripture and we see played out in the world around us is kind of like um, shows us is that not only is Jesus life for us, but Jesus is life for everyone. There's probably no more controversial statement than you can make than the thing I believe is true, the thing that I find life in, is also the thing that you would find life in. You see, uh, we look for life everywhere else. We look for fulfillment everywhere else. We look for satisfaction everywhere else. But everything but Jesus ultimately leads us to death. It is knowing that truth and really believing that truth that causes us as a people to look at the world outside the walls of this church and say, so what about them? What about my friends? What about my family? What about my, my neighbors? What about my coworkers? What about my peers and the people I go to school with? What about all these people around me who may not be finding life in Jesus? Scripture tells us that those people are still uh, ultimately enslaved sort of to sin and ultimately will be enslaved to sin without the hope of Christ, without the life that we find in the gospel. That ultimately, by, by being a person who is like separated from God, um, we're, we're, we're staying separated from God, and ultimately, if we die, we remain separated from God forever. Ultimately, what is described of when it's talked about sort of eternal judgment and punishment is more than anything else, a God who chooses to give people exactly what they choose in this life, which is oftentimes separation from him. So we spend our lives saying, I don't want to have any part in this God. God says, then you won't have any part in me in the life to come. If we spend our lives um, living in sort of the power of the flesh, then all of the choices that we make and the things that we decide to do that are outside of God's will for us and for our lives just kind of compound upon one another eternally in the life to come. And we end up finding ourselves in a place of complete isolation from God and torment from the things that we ourselves have chosen to do. This is what Scripture tells us. So the question is then, what do we do with that? We believe that this isn't just right for me, but not right for you. That this thing that we have found life in is absolutely 100% like a cure for a disease that works for everyone and anyone who does not have it will ultimately perish. Again, I'll say there is no more offensive thing than you could say than that today. But it is true. Unfortunately, things that offend us are often true. 
I'll say things that offend you are often true. (laughs) Because we're all offended by truth at some point or another. So then, if we are going to bring the good news of the gospel to all of those around us, to the world outside the walls of our church and our community, if we're not just building a community, but we're seeking to reach a community, how do we do that? And we do it by living lives of invitation. When we look to the early church, those who were figuring out what it looked like to be the body of Christ in this world, we see a very uh, specific um, thing when it comes to the way that they lived out reaching other people. How did they reach those who didn't yet believe in the gospel of Jesus? There were two components to how people were reached with the gospel in the early church, and I think those same two components need to be present today. We read in Paul's letter to the church in um, Colossia, devote yourselves, Colossians 4, 2 through 6 says this, devote yourselves, says Paul to the church, to prayer, being watchful and thankful. He's telling them how to live their lives as believers. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul is talking about two different groups of people here. He's saying us and you. Who is the us? He's asking them to pray, to devote themselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. He's saying pray for us. Praying what? That God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I have been chains. So what Paul's talking about in this first part of these verses is the evangelists like him. There are those who are gifted. We read about it last week. God gave some, he gave these people to the church and they had certain giftings. And these giftings were things like evangelism and prophecy and teaching and things like that. And, and so Paul is one of those with the gift of evangelism. He has the gift of being able to communicate the gospel to different groups of people in really, in really effective ways. That's his gift. That's one of his gifts. He has many. He has multiple gifts. And there are other people with him who are traveling around preaching the gospel. So the first thing that he's saying to the church is pray for those of us who have been given this gift of evangelism to effectively proclaim the gospel boldly to all different kinds of people. But then he goes on and says what they're to do themselves. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So what the others are called to do, who do not have this gift, he says, of evangelism, is they are called to live their lives in a certain way so that other people would see them and they would think a certain thing. He's saying the way you act towards outsiders, those outside the church, matters profoundly. And so every opportunity that you have, you are to make the most of. Every interaction with those outside the walls of your church or outside the community of God, this family of yours and faith, make the most of every opportunity, of every interaction. Let your conversation with them always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, 
so that you may know how to answer everyone. Seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Salt is a preservative. Jesus said, be the salt and the light of the world. Preservative keeps things from decaying. So let your conversation be gracious. Let it be conversation that brings life to things and keeps them from further decaying, which is what most conversation seems to do. And, and know how to answer everyone. Work to know how to answer everyone. So there's basically what Paul is outlining here is the church's approach to evangelism. The church's approach to evangelism was twofold. There were those who had the gift of evangelism, and they would proclaim things to groups of people, all different kinds of people, very effectively and powerfully. And then there were all of the rest. And what did they do? They were commanded to live their lives, encouraged to live their lives in such a way as to cause people to take notice of them, to ask questions of them, and they then needed to respond to those questions. Be ready with a response, he says. We read something similar in 1 Peter, where Peter talks to the church and says this in chapter 3, verse 15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. So, so you need to be prepared. You need to know enough things to be able to respond to people who ask you things about, the, about this Jesus and about what you believe. But it doesn't just stop with you having answers to questions, with you knowing how to respond to objections, with you getting in debates. Do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Seems kind of pessimistic, right? Well, you see, the early church didn't have a great reputation from the very beginning. They were considered atheists, which is kind of weird, I know, because they lived in, the, in, in this society that was ruled by these Roman and pagan gods. And so most people believe in multiple gods. They believe there's a God for everything. You were constantly ascribing things to powers of gods. And the worship of these false and these idolatrous gods was a part of everyday life. And so the Christians were actually the ones who only worshiped one God. And with the way their math worked out, I guess they're like, if you only worship one, you may as well worship none. So we'll just call them atheists. People didn't like them. The Roman leaders didn't like them because they thought they're going to cause people to stop worshiping the emperor as a god. They're going to stop, they're going to, they're going to, they're, they're questioning the way, the very fabric of our society and the way it's built. And we don't like that. We think there's some kind of a weird, strange cult is what we think. Christians were not looked upon favorably. And Peter knows this and he's experienced it himself. So not only does he say to them, your job is to like know what to say to respond to people. He says you're supposed to keep a clear conscience, knowing that when they persecute you, that when you suffer, that it's not because you did something wrong. And there's a reason he's saying that. Because maybe you're suffering because you did something wrong, right? If you're, if you're, if you're saying foolish things, if you're acting like a foolish person, if you're being antagonistic, if you want to fight with everybody, if you want to make everyone upset, if you want to give them more reasons to be against you, if you're going to treat them with a lack of compassion, if you're going to be hostile towards them, if you're going to be judgmental towards them, if you're going to be prideful towards them, then, like, it's your fault they're giving you a hard time. It's not the gospel's fault. So when someone gives you a hard time, you should have a clear conscience. You should be able to stop and go, have I done something to cause this? What both Paul and both Peter are talking about here 
is the fact that the majority of the church is going to have a different role from that of the gifted, empowered evangelists. The majority of the church body is going to be people who are living out regular day-to-day lives, but are doing that in such a way that people will question what they believe. They will cause people to stop and notice, and those people will ask them questions about why it is that they are living so differently. This is what I mean when I say we are to live lives of invitation. You might say, what does living differently have to do with invitation? Because I think it's very simple in the way that we interact with other people in this world. We're either pushing people away or we're drawing people near. There is no in-between. We're either pushing people away from us because we think we have enough people in our lives or because we want to get all the people away from us that we don't agree with or that we don't like or that we think are going to make things difficult or we're drawing people to us because we have a reason, whatever that reason is, to draw people to us. What the gospel does to us is it tells us that God invited us into life once again. God drew us to him in the midst of our sin which means we invite others into life with us. We draw others to us, regardless of who they are or what they have going on or how difficult that may be. That is what it means to live a life of invitation. So we, the majority of of people in the church, are called to live a life that that, that kind of causes people to ask questions, And that when they ask those questions, that we be ready to have a response, that we be ready to respond. The majority of people in the early church were not capable of going out on the street corner and publicly debating the philosophers of their their time. The majority of people were not capable of going out and articulating the gospel for every different cultural group that there was. But that doesn't mean that the majority of people were not called to evangelize. They were not called to reach others. If there's one thing that you hear today that is a value of our church, it is this, each and every one of us is called to reach those that do not yet find life in Jesus. And most, the overwhelming majority of us, it will not start with us proclaiming him on a street corner to someone. It will start with the way that we live our very lives and our ability to respond to the questions that people ask. So how do we do that, right? How do we live lives like that? One author named Michael Frost who wrote a book um, about sort of how Christians bless the world, which I'm taking several points from as we talk about how to practically do that this morning. He says it this way, and this might bother you, but I'm sorry if it does. Living a fine, upstanding, middle-class lifestyle in the suburbs doesn't cause the world to stand up and take notice. If we're trying to live questionable lives, then cutting the lawn, saying hi to the neighbors, washing our car, walking the dog, and driving to the office every day is hardly an intriguing lifestyle. If most of us were honest, we would, we would say, we would admit that we would really like it if living this kind of surprising life for the outsider, those outside, this kind of intriguing life was simply a matter of just living out the life we already want to live. As long as I make sure I'm honest and nice and kind, as long as I wave and I smile and I do all those things, I don't yell at my kids or my dog in front of everybody, you know, then, uh, then we're good. But unfortunately, that's not actually how that works. 
If we just go about living our lives as though we're not actually called to do more than that, to live more than that, then um, what we find is that we all just walk past each other still. We all just, none of us see anything about one another that is, that is worth asking questions about. The only way for us to truly live in a way that is different is to make it a priority in our lives to live in a way that is different. To develop rhythms and patterns in our lives that are not natural, probably, that are going to cause us to live differently and put us in the presence of people who we would not otherwise be in the presence of. That is what it looked like in the early church to live out one's faith. As wonderful as this community is that we build, using our gifts and believing that life is in the gospel, we must go outside of this community and live our lives in such a way that people would take notice. I want to talk about four different ways that we do that, four specific things that we do. The first is this. We bless people. We've been blessed with the gospel. We've been blessed with the hope in Jesus. Jesus' number one way of connecting with people when he was bringing them the truth of the gospel was to bless them. Everyone had different needs. Everyone had different circumstances. But you cannot build a bridge with a person while cursing them. Unfortunately, that's just the way people work. I know, when we get really mad and we get really irritated, we'd like to believe for just a second, maybe getting mad and cursing someone will actually help out the relationship. Turns out, it doesn't. It begins with blessing. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. We often overcomplicate it significantly. The first of these sort of rhythms that we develop as people who are seeking to bring the gospel to those outside the walls of this church, is to be a blessing to those around us, truly a blessing. Generosity in the name of Christ. Why? Because Christ has been generous with us. Christ didn't need to, but he did. Through his generosity, I have been deeply blessed, so I'm going to bless others. So the question then becomes, how can I do this? How can I live my life in such a way that I am regularly blessing others, which is not a natural thing for most of us to do? Well, we discipline ourselves to do it. We say uh, this many times each week, I'm going to bless somebody. That's how we do it. That's how we do anything that really matters to us, is we, we, we make a rhythm, we develop a pattern and a habit because we know that's the only way that it's actually going to happen. The way that Christians blessed others was so different from everyone else in the world that it caused people to stop and take notice of the way they lived, and it significantly added to the number of believers in the day. There was a Roman emperor named Julian, and uh, he lived in the 4th century, so like 300s uh, A.D., and he was writing to the people of Rome, lamenting the fact that Christians, who he calls Galileans, um, were adding so many people to their numbers by simply taking care of people that weren't Christians, by simply being compassionate towards people that weren't Christians. 
This is what he says to the people of Rome. Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the pretend holiness of their lives, that they have done the most to increase atheism or Christianity? I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues, for it is disgraceful that when the impious Galileans support not only their own poor but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. So he is infuriated by the fact that what these Christians are doing that is so crazy is they aren't just loving each other. They're loving other people. It makes sense to love each other. Loving each other causes no one to take notice. Loving your own family, loving your best friends, loving the people in your community that you've developed is not something that is unique or powerful. It is loving others, blessing others in the way that we live. And at the time when there were diseases and plagues and everyone else took off because they didn't want to catch the disease, the Christians stayed and they helped, often at the cost of their own lives. They fed those who were hungry who weren't believers. They gave um, shelter to those that needed it who weren't believers. They showed compassion to those who needed it that weren't believers. And you know who didn't do that was the rest of the Roman Empire. And so this emperor decides that he's going to start his own campaign where he tells all these people to act like Christians. And believe it or not, it didn't work. They didn't do it. Why? because they didn't have a reason to do it. And him telling him to apparently wasn't good enough. Being motivated probably by threat of violence and arrest or fear isn't enough to cause people to be loving and compassionate. When I was uh, younger, um, I read this book called The Five Love Languages. And this book like changed my life because it like made me realize that people have different ways of giving and receiving love. Uh, so the way that I like to love you may not be the way that you like to be loved by me. And if I really care about you, I'm actually going to take the time to figure out what really matters to you, the language that you speak. It's a really profound thing, this idea that we actually would care enough about people to figure out how they receive love, not just how we give it. And if you ever want to know how someone receive love, receives love, it's easy. How do they give it, right? The person who's always giving you presents, even though you never asked for them, or even though you're like, great, now I have to give you one or something, right? Maybe that person really feels loved when they receive presents. That's actually a thing, right? The, the, the five love languages are, are kind words, words of kindness, gifts, acts of service, physical touch, and quality time. Now, I would suggest maybe not on physical touch with what we're talking about, because we all know that person who like gives creepy shoulder rubs, you know, and they're just like always like, hey, how's it going, right? Uh, maybe don't start with physical touch right away, um, only with those that are closest to you. They need to ask for it first. There needs to be consent, but... There, there is the truth to the fact that what does it mean to bless others? It's simple. It is words of kindness and encouragement that we go out of our way to show, that we go out of our way to write down notes that we give people, things that we take time to say to people that might be awkward or uncomfortable or that, that, that could easily go unsaid. 
gifts, things that show other people that we cared enough about them to think about them, to give them something when they're in a time of need. Acts of service is huge. Uh, when people are in need, people are in need, right? And we all know what it's like to be at a point in life when we just really need help. We're too afraid to ask. Usually it's we're too prideful to ask. Or maybe we're asking and no one is answering. To truly be there to help someone and care for them and to just spend time with people. These are ways that we bless people. These are ways that we bless people um, in the world around us and in doing so, live differently. This means paying attention to people, learning what speaks to them the loudest. But the bottom line is that blessing other people doesn't just happen by itself, and it takes some effort for us. It takes some work to do something gracious or something generous. I think the next thing that we do in trying to live this way, to try to live a life of invitation, is first, it always starts with blessing, because uh, who's going to turn down blessing? Who's going to say, I don't like you for blessing? Uh, if nothing else, I think the Bible says when you bless somebody who really hates you, it heaps burning coals on their head. So there you go. That can make you feel better. Number two is we share meals with others. Sharing meals with other people becomes a regular part of our lives. You go, this is way too specific, Ed. Why are you talking about sharing meals? Because here's the thing. There's something about the way we work as people that sitting across from one another over a cup of coffee or over a meal actually means something to us. I've done some, some very extensive research on this. Turns out there's a couple of things that we need every day. We need to eat. We need to sleep, we need to go to the bathroom, and we need to shower. Now, I don't think it would be a good idea if you started with three of those four things, okay? I don't recommend going to the bathroom with people, I don't recommend sleeping, and I don't recommend showering. I think a good place to start is eating. We eat three times a day, we have all kinds of opportunities, and we know what it's like to be at work and to feel stressed and to be like, I don't really feel like being around people anymore right now. So I'm going to go into a break room or I'm going to go sit in my car and I'm going to look at my phone and I'm just going to take some time by myself. And we totally all know what that feels like. And there are plenty of times throughout the week that we can have the opportunity to do that. But the truth is that a life of invitation has to involve in some way sitting across a table from another person. Sitting across a table and just spending time with another person. And this must be a regular part of our lives. We read this from... Uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, when we read about uh, the ministry of Jesus, Matthew 9, 9 through 13 says this, And as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what Jesus is saying here is so incredibly profound. Like, there could be multiple like sermons given on what Jesus is saying here because there's a reason the Pharisees are the ones asking him about this. Because to be a good uh, religious person at the time meant you surrounded yourself with other religious people 
and you ate meals with other religious people. There was nothing more impure that you could do than to share a meal with a Gentile, a person who was not Jewish. There was, there was all kinds of rules that were going to be broken. There was all kinds of dietary rules and, and rules about cleansing and hand washing, not to mention the kind of stuff people probably talked about and the way these unreligious people behaved. You see, when Jesus came at the time, the belief was, they believed very strongly, they were passionate about this fact, that if you wanted to live a good life for God, then you needed to to take the little bit of time that you had with other people and make it with religious people. I need all these people around me to help me be a holy person, to help me be a good person. I need to eat my meals with them. I need to share my life with them. And if I don't do that, I'm going to start backsliding. I'm going to start sinning. I'm going to start saying things that are wrong and doing things that are wrong. And yet what Jesus comes to say to them is the power of the gospel is so much stronger than this religious life of rules that you've developed that it cannot be taken away by simply eating with a sinner. Jesus has so much confidence in the power of the gospel in the power of the righteousness of God, righteousness that God gives to us, not that we earn ourselves, that he knows that we can spend our time with people who are not a part of the Christian body and that we'll be okay. Jesus ate with all kinds of people. He ate with his disciples so often, of course, but he also ate with many others. And taking the time to just share meals with others is, a, is like a specific and tangible way that we will be able to do this as a church. When Peter was the leader of the early church, Paul goes to visit and he calls him out. He totally catches Peter eating with the Jewish Christians and avoiding the non-Jewish Christians. And he's like, Peter, what the heck, man? Like, are you kidding me? Like, this is not good. And he calls him out on it. And Peter's like, you're right, man. I'm totally busted, Right? Because when left to ourselves, what will we do? We will want to be around the people who are exactly like us. And what Jesus is saying is that is not a life of invitation. That is a life of indulgence and selfishness. And my gospel is powerful enough and strong enough that you'll be okay eating with sinners and tax collectors. It's not natural to us. We like eating with our best friends. We like celebrating our birthdays with them. We celebrate Thanksgiving and Friendsgiving. We watch the Super Bowl with them. And this has nothing to do with how much we're really trying to live like Jesus. This is just the way that you, we live because it brings us joy. The way you know that you're following in the footsteps of Jesus himself is that you're inviting people that you don't normally socialize with into your life and that you're seeking to be a part of their life, that you're accepting invitations from them. Even though you're like, nah, that's not really my world. That's not really my thing. I've talked to so many believers who, in working to live a life of invitation, have accepted some of the weirdest invitations ever and have seen an incredible amount of blessing. Another thing that we will do is that we will listen to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, about where it is that he's actually leading us. You see, living a life of invitation is not just about doing things. It's not about working harder and trying to check things off of a list. 
We must be connected to the Holy Spirit because Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is the way that God speaks to us. It's the way that God empowers the things that we do. The Holy Spirit will take regular, normal actions and make them supernatural works of, of God. The Holy Spirit will lead us to other people whose lives God is working in. The truth is God is working to draw all people to him, each individual person. He is working in the life of everyone that you know to draw them closer to him. And that same Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit that we seek to just, like, as often as we can. But for many of us, that means, honestly, just one time a week, just quieting out, all, blocking out all of the noise, quieting our thoughts for long enough to be able to actually talk with God and listen for the Holy Spirit. Ask God to move in our hearts. Ask God to, to, to be with us. This is not an easy thing to do. The Bible shows us that there are three voices at work in our lives at any given period of time. There is the voice of the flesh, which is like the physical body that we live in that's um, been corrupted by a sinful nature. And it, our flesh is that voice that's always telling us, this is what you want, right? Uh, we know what our flesh sounds like, and uh, our flesh is going to tell us what we desire, what feels good, what tastes good, what seems good, what's easy and natural for us. That's what our flesh is. Our flesh isn't always bad, but our flesh is going to be about us. There's also the voice of God, the voice speaking to us on behalf of God and by God himself. And then there's going to be the voice of the enemy, when we look back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are initially tempted by this serpent, um, who's Satan, we're seeing all three voices at work. You see Adam and Eve with their flesh saying, I want to know, I want to be more in control. I want to I have the little bit that God seemed to be holding back from me. That's what the flesh said. And the voice of God said, trust me and only eat of this one, with this one, free, this one tree. And with the voice of the enemy said, don't trust him. He's holding out on you. The voice of the enemy is a deceiver. The enemy is a deceiver, so the voice of the enemy is always lying. So if we know that the vo as long as we live in this body of ours, we're going to be dealing with the voice of the flesh. It's going to be there. And we know that the enemy is always working to, like, deceive us into things. Then if we do not take time and quiet out all the noise of the world and everything else and seek to listen to the Spirit of God, how can we hope to hear his voice? We're simply bouncing back between the voice of the flesh and the voice of the enemy. When I slow down and I begin listening to God, I know that usually there's going to be like at least 15 minutes where all of these voices are going to crowd into my mind. It's all of the things that I like need to do and all the stuff that I keep forgetting about. And I made the mistake for years of thinking that was God speaking to me. Like God just wanted to give me something to do and then I could run off and do it. And, uh, and it wasn't until, uh, really, I, well, there was a point when God spoke to me and I came to realize that, like, all of those things are really the distractions that I need to let just sort of fade past me, get past me, blow past me, fade away. That it's not until I get past all that stuff that I'm able to really listen to the Holy Spirit. I'm able to really talk with God and I'm able to really be there with him. Sometimes people I know write all those things down. 
They like write down all that stuff. So like, fine, good, I won't forget about it. I'll just write it down in like a journal or something. And then uh, I can think and I can listen and I can have a clear head here. But we have to regularly take time to listen to the Spirit. We do that here as we worship together. We do that as we pray with one another and we pray on our own. But there's a reason why Christians take time out to connect with God, to stay connected to the vine. And that's because um, we can't possibly live a life of invitation for others if we don't have the Holy Spirit speaking into our life, telling us how to do that, who to go to, uh, what that should look like and empowering the things that we do. Because we're actually asking God, God, would you take these invitations, these blessings, these things that I'm doing, and would you put power behind them and accomplish something for your kingdom like you did in the early church and like I've seen you do in my own life? The last thing that we do is we learn about the life of Jesus. And learning about the life of Jesus becomes a regular part of our life. There is so much to know about Jesus' life about the way that he lived, the way he treated people. And we are to, I'm going to use kind of a weird word here, but it is the only, right, the only good word to use, I think. We are to marinate. Isn't that a weird word? We're to marinate in the life of Jesus. We read about it in the Gospels. We read books about it where people can explain some of the history behind what's in the Gospels. We talk with other people about Jesus. Uh, we talk with God about his son, and we talk to Jesus himself. But we do whatever we can to become experts on the life of Jesus. Why? Because God came to this earth and lived in the flesh so that we could see what it looked like for God to live in the flesh. Jesus is our example of how to live. We are ultimately disciples of him. We're followers of him. We are seeking to become Jesus's. And I don't mean that in a blasphemous way, like we can be God. Jesus said it himself to follow him and to do the things that he did and that we would do even greater things. When we say that the gospel is at the core of everything that we do, we acknowledge that the gospel is not everything that we do. The gospel is something that we go back to, the message of life in Christ, um, and the life that we find in Jesus. We go back to that again and again. We go back to that as often as we can. But there is a lot more besides just the message of the gospel that we are to know. How can we answer the questions that people bring to us? How can we respond to the questions that people bring to us if we're not spending time in God's word, understanding what it says? The best Things that I have ever learned from the word of God have been because of questions that people have asked me. No question. It has been the questions of others that have caused me to develop questions of my own that have brought me to God's word in such a way, that have brought me to the life of Jesus in such a way, right? Why would a woman break a bottle of perfume and like dump it on his feet and his, wash it with her hair and it's worth a year's wages? What does that even mean, right? Like, how does that even make any sense, right? Like, why is Jesus saying one sister is better than the other when she's, like, just being there with him instead of taking care of him and doing all this stuff for him? Because he says that. Why does Jesus say these things uh, to his disciples and do these things with these people that are hard for me to wrap my mind around? It's only through really, like, being in those things. Remember, we read this in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. 
Do this with gentleness and respect. We are to be prepared to give an answer to everyone, which means we are to make the word of God something that we, like, are in constantly. Not because it gives us um, our salvation, but because it's how we know about God. It's how we know how to answer to these things. Does the church need evangelists? Yes. People gifted with the ability to communicate the gospel to different kinds of people in incredibly dynamic ways. Does the church need evangelistic strategies? Yes. Does the church need evangelistic opportunities, events and programs and things that help us do this? Absolutely. But the majority of the work of evangelism that we will do is what we do in our own lives, which is exactly how the early church absolutely exploded in number. But the only way to make something a reality in our life is not to make it a list of rules, but it is to develop rhythms. It is to say, this becomes a regular part of my life. Anything that you've wanted to try to do in life that you weren't already doing, you've had to develop a rhythm for that thing, right? You've had to develop some kind of discipline in order to form a habit for that thing. And so there's no better way to do it than to simply say, how many times each week am I going to bless people? And how often will it be people who are not inside the walls of this church? How many times each week can I share a meal with someone, sit across from someone for coffee, and have at least one of those times be somebody who's outside the walls of this church? How many times this week am I able to really sit and be there with the Holy Spirit? And it probably is going to start with one time for most people. How many times, how can I immerse myself in Jesus and in the life of Jesus in a way that actually makes it happen? You see, if we're to be a church um, that lives this way, the mission that God has given us, to build a community to reach community, it means that we, we must return to the gospel constantly when we're together. It means that we must recognize that we are not consumers here but we have been empowered with gifts of the Holy Spirit to use to reach others and to build this community. But it also means that we must develop rhythms in our life that cause us to be people who live radically differently. We will not be known for all of the things that we don't do. We won't be known for all of the rules that we follow and the prohibitions in our lives. We'll be known for the things that we do for the way that we're present in the lives of others when no one else is, for the fact that we care about those outside of our little bubble when no one else does. It's by living that way that Christians changed the world. Let's pray.